stop us if you've heard this one before. Rambunctious blowhard with weird hair, extreme opinions, volatile temperament and scandal-plagued personal life, best known as a television personality, runs for president. Promises to expunge the self-serving political establishment and treacherous media elite who have been conspiring to immiserate the people. Tells his audience that their misfortunes are someone else's fault and that their problems can be easily fixed. Last weekend, Argentinians voted, and by a hefty margin, to entrust their highest office to Javier Millet, an eccentric economist and hyper-conservative media contrarian. Millet proposes a radical pruning of Argentina's state. By way of making his point, he has been fond of brandishing a chainsaw at campaign events. Millet is not a complete political novice. He has been a member of Argentina's parliament since 2021, leading a smallish libertarian coalition. And Argentina's apparently eternal economic predicament has furnished him with plenty of material. His opponent in last weekend's presidential election runoff, Sergio Massa, was the economy minister running on a record which included inflation of 142%. How serious is Javier Malay? Will this experiment with populism go any better than they usually do? And why is Argentina, once one of Earth's richest countries, lavishly blessed with human and natural capital, Always such a shambles. This is The Foreign Desk. Argentine society will mobilize against these reforms. They won't want to pay more for subways and trains, for water and electricity and natural gas. They won't want to lose their pensions. They won't want to lose jobs at the government or state-owned enterprises. And as they mobilize to stop these reforms, we'll see if he has the capacity to continue leading Argentina and to see this through until Argentine society sees the benefits from it. He got really defensive whenever I asked him about some of his more controversial economic plans. And when I asked him why he's so rude on television, his responses were really childish. I mean, because everybody else tries to wind me up. And he called people who criticized his proposals brutes or dumb. So he didn't strike me as someone who knows how to listen to people who disagree with him. I don't think he has the ability to take other points of view into consideration, which I don't think is terribly healthy for democracy. There are people who are entertained by this. They think it would be great if they had their own Trump. That looked fun. Remember that a lot of people voted for Trump just to see what would happen, just because they thought it would be fun. The problem is whether you want good government or entertaining and hilarious TV. And if you want good government, then yeah, it does put you off of this experience. But if you're what you really want is reality TV, you think this is great. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, from Buenos Aires by Anna Lankes, the Economist's Latin America correspondent. Um, Anna, you have had the advantage, if advantage it is, of actually sitting down with Javier Malay quite recently and having a long conversation with him. What, if any, different sense do you get of him in person than the rest of us might have got from seeing him fulminating on television? 
Well, I was actually quite surprised when I met him in person because he became famous on television for shouting things and making really aggressive comments about his opponents and just being quite insulting generally. And yet when I met him, he was actually very sweet and he struck me as more of a kind of eccentric academic. Like he rattled off names of really obscure economists nobody's ever heard of and really wanted to talk about economic theory with me. So I couldn't help feel he was maybe a bit of like an oddball as a kid and then became surprisingly popular by adopting this angry television persona. And now I think he's a bit surprised that he's been elected president. What I did notice in our interview, though, and this really worries me, is that he got really defensive whenever I asked him about some of his more controversial economic plans. And when I asked him why he's so rude on television, his responses were really childish. They were like, I mean, because everybody else tries to wind me up. And he called people who criticized his proposals brutes or dumb. So he didn't strike me as someone who knows how to listen to people who disagree with him. I don't think he has the ability to take other points of view into consideration, which I don't think is terribly healthy for democracy. Did you get a sense or is there a sense yet of what his political beliefs are? Is there any kind of coherence to it, a, a philosophy that you could perhaps usefully compare to anybody or anything else? So I do think that he really believes in this philosophy that he subscribes to, which is called anarcho-capitalism. And it's like a slightly obscure strand of right-wing libertarianism. It's a theory that was developed in the US by a man called Murray Rothbart. And it basically holds that the state is a criminal organization because it funds itself through taxes that people don't usually pay voluntarily. And because it has the monopoly on force, it controls the army and the police. And so instead of a state in an anarcho-capitalist world, the state would basically cease to exist and all of its provisions like education and healthcare and environmental protection and building roads and infrastructure would be supplied through voluntary contracts between individuals. It's like this conception of a society that's governed by a super free market. So I came away thinking he does actually seem to believe in this. He's the type of person that strikes me as a a religious convert. He has also recently taken up a very strong interest in Judaism. And I think this strand of kind of zealotry is present in many different parts of his life. And economic theory is no different to that. So he discovered this theory around the time of the financial crisis, and he became kind of obsessed with it. So when we were talking, he mentioned conventional economists like Milton Friedman, but then he mentioned a lot of anarcho-capitalists like Hans Hermann Hoppe, Walter Block, and Milton Friedman's son, David Friedman. So I do actually think that he believes in this, but because he's running to be the actual head of a state, he's obviously not going to abolish the state, he has to administer it. So he says that though he subscribes to anarcho-capitalism philosophically, Pragmatically, he's more of a minarchist, which means that he thinks the state should be cut down to the smallest possible size and most of its functions should be taken over by the private sector. In a minarchist world, you'd basically only have the police and some judicial institutions that can ensure a right to private property. And all the rest is taken over by the private sector. So that's what I think he's going to try to do. He's going to try to whittle down the state to the smallest possible size, which is difficult in Argentina because the Argentine state is gigantic.
And does he see that hardcore economic libertarianism as congruent with the social values, if you like, that he's espoused? This includes legalising drugs and guns and organ trading and being very much against, at the same time, abortion, public health care and public education. Yeah, totally. So I think abortion was the issue that most confused me. So I asked him in our interview, if you're a libertarian, you know, you believe that the state shouldn't interfere in the in people's personal decisions. How can you be against abortion? And he told me that within the libertarian movement, there is actually kind of a split. He's part of the libertarian school that thinks that abortion should not be legal because you cannot be free unless you have a right to be born first. He said to me, you have the right to do what you want with your body. But when you're pregnant, you have to think of two bodies. There are two beings. And so you don't have the right to interfere in the decisions of the other. That's what he said to me. Where did you get to on some of the stories doing the rounds about his, well, even by his standards, eccentric personal habits? Many people listening to this will have heard the rumours that he maintains a kennel full of somehow cloned dogs, which he regards as his advisors, and that he may or may not be in contact with a deceased canine via a medium. Yes, both of those things are true. I contacted the scientist that cloned his dog. So Millet adopted an English Mastiff in 2004, and he became his best friend, basically, and he calls him his four-legged child. And when the dog died in 2017, he couldn't part ways with it. So he had a sample of the dog's tissue sent to a company in Massachusetts that basically grew cells from it and sent those cells to a cloning facility in Texas. And then five puppies were born, and researchers at the University of California, Davis, basically made sure that their DNA was identical to the original dog, Conan's. And the whole process cost $50,000. And then those dogs were sent to Argentina. It's unclear to me whether one of those dogs died. He only ever shows four dogs. But he also talks about Conan as if he were still alive. And there is a medium who has had contact with Millet and who has helped him, apparently, be in touch with Conan. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Just finally then, uh, this is a question which is of particular interest, I'm sure, to the government of the country from which we're broadcasting, which obviously has something of a history with tempestuous populists coming to power in Argentina. Do we know what he actually thinks about the Falkland Islands? Yeah. <laughs> He's a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, and you're not supposed to say that in Argentina. He also said that the Kelpers, the inhabitants of the Falkland Islands, have a right to self-determination, which means that, you know, the Kelpers did a referendum in which, by a North Korean-style margin of over 90%, they wanted to remain part of Britain. And so by saying they have a right to self-determination, you're kind of suggesting that one should honor that referendum. So Millet has said both those things, but because he's running to be president of Argentina, he has also said many times that he's going to do everything he can through all the diplomatic channels to make the Falklands Argentine again. I don't believe that. He's actually quite an Anglophile, so he's not just a fan of Margaret Thatcher. He also was a frontman for a Rolling Stones tribute band. He's a huge fan of Mick Jagger, and he said that he styled his hair originally as a teenager to be like Mick Jagger. 
Anna, thank you. That was The Economist's Latin America correspondent Anna Lankes speaking to us from Buenos Aires. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Though many of President-elect Malay's proposed economic reforms appear located in that stretch of the spectrum between the bizarre and the insane, he and his supporters are entitled to point to the last several decades of Argentina's history and retort that nothing else has worked. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. to attempt to explain why is Benjamin Gedan, director of the Latin America Programme and Argentina Project at the Wilson Centre. Benjamin formerly served as South America director on the National Security Council at the White House. Benjamin, first of all, is there a short answer to the question of why Argentina's economy just never seems to function as a developed nation's economy should? Yeah, it's actually not as complex as it seems. I mean, the economic dramas are idiosyncratic in their scale and frequency, but the roots are pretty basic. Argentina spends too much. It borrows too much. And when it can't borrow anymore, it simply prints pesos. And like anywhere else, that causes inflation. It just happens more frequently and more dramatically in Argentina. If the problem is that straightforwardly diagnosed, should it not logically follow that the cure could be equally easily proposed? So the diagnoses are obvious, but the political economy problems are daunting. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is Argentines have simply become accustomed to this quality of life. And the Argentines who depend upon the state, whether through public employment or through the subsidies for their public utilities, are not willing to let them go. And they're very mobilized society, whether the public employee unions, whether private sector unions, social movements that have just been built to protest in order to defend the government handouts, they're very skilled at blocking structural reform. And the second problem is that Argentina's economy has been so dysfunctional for so long that fixing any one problem exacerbates another problem. (laughs) If you, for example, rationalize the multiple exchange rates and let the peso float, imports become much more expensive, which makes inflation a lot worse, and on and on and on. Is it that thing which I think is fairly common across democracies, and you see it in addressing a lot of long-term problems, climate change most obviously, that there is a tension between politicians knowing what will work perhaps in the long term, but also understanding that that will get them thrown out of office in the short term. It's absolutely the problem, and the short term is quite short. You're already thinking about how you perform in the midterm elections in two years. That doesn't give you a lot of runway in order to impose some sacrifices on a population for longer-term fiscal sustainability and for economic growth. And in Argentina, you have this constant rotation of political parties. So there's absolutely no consistency, no ability to plan. And again, just no appetite on behalf of the Argentine population for short-term pain in order to steady the ship. But one thing I will say in defense of the Argentine voter is that things have been difficult for quite a while. I mean, we look at the way Argentines have reacted in recent elections, and it may seem irrational, but they've suffered a great deal under these extraordinary inflationary conditions, poverty now above 40%. We sometimes forget about the struggles in Argentina because Buenos Aires is so lovely and the architecture is so grand. But the country really has endured a very difficult decade. I know everybody who comes to power in Argentina, the 
president-elect being no exception, says, I will be the one who fixes this. But if we think back a couple of presidents, that president, Maurizio Macri, was supposed to be the one who was going to. He was the hard-headed technocrat who was going to govern the country off a balance sheet. This is the guy that can turn it all around. Why did whatever Macri attempted to do not work? Interestingly, what Javier Millet, the president-elect of Argentina right now, is promising is actually quite distinct from what Mauricio Macri promised, though they're both conservatives who do want to overhaul the way Argentina operates. In Mauricio Macri's view, he just didn't have the maneuvering space to act quickly and dramatically. He truly feared that he would not finish his term. And in fact, he was the first non-parentist to finish his term in the modern era of Argentine democracy. And I think with good reason, he was very anxious about provoking a social uprising, social unrest, union national strikes, and all sorts of political and economic chaos. And so he moved quite slowly, continued to borrow unsustainably, and unsurprisingly ended up without reforms that were of any substance and with another debt crisis. This government is promising not to make those mistakes. It's saying that it's going to come in, use whatever mandate it has from winning an election by over 11 percentage points, act quickly before society can mobilize against it, and make the difficult decisions needed to turn Argentina around. President-elect Malay's headline economic plan is this one of all but abolishing Argentina's central bank, abolishing the peso and converting the country's economy to the dollar. Is that necessarily a completely terrible idea? Javier Millet's diagnoses are absolutely correct. He's a skilled economist and he's right. Argentina spends too much. Its central bank is dysfunctional because it's not independent, and so it's answerable to the presidency. And what it does is it prints money to pay for Argentina's deficits whenever Argentina can't borrow internationally, like today. And he's correct that you can't fix Argentina without radically reducing the size of the state and without creating confidence either in the Argentine currency or bringing in the U.S. dollar. Can he implement his vision is a different question, and arguably it's not feasible at all given the fact that he will have no party structure. It's a brand new party, two years old. In the Congress, it will have seven seats out of 37 in the Senate. It will have eight Senate seats out of 37 and hardly anyone in the lower house. And so the political coalitions that are necessary, the public support that's necessary, the party structure that's necessary are all absent. So it'll be very difficult for Millet to pull off what he's promising. But if he can do that, is there anything we learn from the experience of Panama, Ecuador, which I understand are very different and much smaller countries, about what happens when you abandon your own currency as a Latin American country and use the US dollar instead? There are a lot of advantages and disadvantages to dollarization, and it's not in and of itself an insane proposition. What you do is you do end inflation, at least the kind of inflation Argentina has suffered from, which is the result of reckless monetary policy, this endless printing of pesos. You lose, on the other hand, control of your currency. And so you can't devalue when you need to encourage exports. You don't have the kind of shock absorption capacity that monetary policy often offers. And suddenly you just are subject to the whims or good judgment of the Federal Reserve in this case, which is thinking only of the interests of the U.S. economy. It hasn't failed dramatically. It's still in operation in both Panama and Ecuador. This would be, however, a very different scale for this experiment. Argentina is the second biggest economy in South America. It's a member of the G20, and it's going to attempt to dollarize without access to financial markets and, frankly, without dollars in its central bank. 
Even if the idea in itself, just finally, is not completely insane, it's not necessarily clear that the same can be said of the president-elect. If a transformation of this scale is undertaken by somebody of his, well, eccentricity, is there a danger that things get even worse? Could Argentina end up looking much more like Zimbabwe or Venezuela? It'll be really interesting to see which Javier Millet governs Argentina. You have the Javier Millet television personality and candidate who really luxuriated in his eccentricities. He brought this chainsaw to his rallies as a metaphor for how he wants to cut the state down to size and eliminate social welfare programs. He cloned his dogs and he insisted his senior advisors are these cloned pets of his. You know, his sister, who believes in mysticism, was the head of his campaign. And in fact, he thanked her prominently on election night. He's an unusual figure. On the other hand, his economic ideas are not entirely fanciful. They're not entirely practical either, but I think he clearly understands Argentina's problems. He has brought on some more experienced advisors lately to compensate for the fact that he has an inexperienced small team and a brand new party. And he is clearly committed to these ideas. He has held them consistently for many years. So we'll see which Javier Millet enters the presidential palace, the Casa Rosada, and whether he is able to build legislative coalitions and bring the public on board for the kinds of structural reform that's needed. The question, however, is also about leadership. And I think that's why it is important to think about his temperament, because Argentine society will mobilize against these reforms. They won't want to pay more for subways and trains, for water and electricity and natural gas. They won't want to lose their pensions. They won't want to lose jobs at the government or state-owned enterprises. And as they mobilize to stop these reforms, we'll see if he has the capacity to continue leading Argentina and to see this through until Argentine society sees the benefits from it. That was Benjamin Gedan, director of the Latin America program and Argentina project at the Wilson Center. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. This is the Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Argentina is not the first country to have taken its chances with a self-styled outsider populist in recent years. Indeed, given this week's election in the Netherlands, it's not even the latest. But if even if the appeal of electing the maverick iconoclast is obvious enough in theory, why are more voters and more countries not deterred by the fact that it rarely, if ever, works out well in practice? Well, join Joining me now from Rhode Island is Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of several books, most pertinently to this discussion, The Death of Expertise, an updated version of which will be with us shortly. Tom, first of all, why did one term of Donald Trump not put absolutely everyone else off this kind of thing? Part of the problem is that when these incompetent populists make their way into government, there is a whole infrastructure around them that kind of puts those toddler bumpers on the sharp edges of the furniture. So, you know, you have career civil servants, you have other appointees, you have people, you know, working throughout the bureaucracy who kind of make sure that, you know, there's only so many things that these guys can break. The other thing is that, of course, they don't really understand government. There was a great line about Ben Carson He's a doctor who became the head of housing and urban development here in the United States. And one of his subordinates said, 
It's good that he doesn't understand anything about what the department does, or he could have damaged a lot more stuff. So that's part of it is that they never really get a chance to ram everything into a ditch. And so people say, well, how could it? We're seeing this in the United States right now. Well, if Donald Trump came back, how bad could it be? We lived through the last four years. You know, yeah, but barely. I think that the other reason it doesn't put people off of it is that there are people who are entertained by this. They think it would be great if they had their own Trump. That looked fun. Remember that a lot of people voted for Trump. They admitted that they voted for Trump just to see what would happen, just because they thought it would be fun. The problem is whether you want good government or entertaining and hilarious, you know, TV. If you want good government, then yeah, it does put you off of this experience. But if what you really want is reality TV, you think this is great. But do you think that desire to be entertained and amused by your politics, which I agree is a widespread politician, still to resort to the inevitable pun trumps the fact that these people can't actually govern. They don't really improve outcomes for anybody, often least of all the people who actually elect them. What really works in, in the favor of populists at that moment is that most people in a modern 21st century society where our standards of living are very high, our levels of technology are very high, they don't draw a strong link between who's governing and how things get done. Because things around them, at least for a while, just work. That you can elect a Donald Trump and yet somehow you can still send an email and yet you know, your government transfer payments somehow still arrive in your mailbox because things just work. And that'll be true right up until the day they don't. It takes a long, probably not as long as we think, but it takes a little while to really gum up everything and to really, you know, destroy the gears of government. But unfortunately, people don't make that connection. And so they don't see the problem of incompetence you know, rippling down the line. One case I'll just bring up is in Turkey, when Erdogan just fired all these civil servants and said, we don't need to worry about things like inflation. And of course, inflation just started crashing through the roof. And all these civil servants said, well, you know, what are you going to do? We weren't there. We couldn't measure these things. We couldn't control any of this. But it's pretty rare that you get this kind of almost instantaneous effect between incompetence and people's daily lives. Beyond, though, that desire to be entertained or amused by politics, fatuous and inane though that is, is there necessarily something darker underpinning it as well? There's something about the populace suggesting, either implicitly or explicitly, I'm going to get even with those people on your behalf. These are people fueled by resentment and vengeance, and they want somebody to carry that out for them against enemies real and or often imagined. Yes, populism, this is one reason I've always been deeply distrustful of populism, is the clowning around and the you know carnival atmosphere is really a secondary effect. What really propels this kind of populism is this very dark sense that these people are living a better life than I am. They seem to be enjoying their lives more than I do. My life is a mess and somehow they're responsible for it. And so they are indeed propelled by this sense of revenge. And the really difficult part of that is that it's not vengeance for being, for example, poor. The poorest in America are actually not populists. <laughs> they're pretty reliable Democratic Party voters, actually. They rely on government 
for solutions. The real problem is when that resentment is a much more intangible sense that those people in that faraway big city seem to be living the good life. And who do they think they are? And boy, we're going to get even with them for living a different life than the one that we have to live right here where we are. This is what H.L. Mencken referred to as the yokel's congenital and incurable hatred of the city man, the simian rage against everyone who is having a better time than he is. Yeah, there is really this sense, as you know, one of my colleagues once put it, that the real sin here is that they're going to get even with people living the good life. And of course, that's a misunderstanding, as if people in cities don't, you know, sweat the bills and try to figure out where their kids are going to go to school and how to make ends meet. But it's stoked by people, ironically enough, these populous charlatans often live in these cities, but they stoke this resentment. And it's always struck me that, you know, Fox News broadcasts from Times Square. <laughs> people seem completely immune to the irony that these populists go on the air and they rage about, you know, the cities and the liberals and what these people are doing. And they walk into Times Square and get in a limo and go to a, an estate on Long Island. I mean, it's crazy. But unfortunately, that's how populism works. But has America's recent experience in particular given the rest of us any clues as to what to do about it? Because we are living in real time a compare and contrast experiment. You had Donald Trump followed by Joe Biden, who has not necessarily uh, set the woods ablaze, but he has been, I think, by most measures, a fairly solid centre-left kind of president, more or less decent and competent. He has overseen an approving economy. And and judging by his poll numbers, that's very much not enough. No, and I think part of the problem is that we've all become, you know, even the more well-intentioned voters have become adrenaline junkies. You know, Joe Biden promised when he ran, he said, when I become president, you won't have to think about me every day. Well, that's a double-edged sword. He's right. People don't have to think about him every day. But they've gotten very used to the president being a celebrity. You know, and this goes all the way back to, you could say, to John F. Kennedy, but certainly to Ronald Reagan, to Bill Clinton, to Barack Obama, you know, these larger than life figures. And when you get a 45, 47 year veteran senator and vice president who becomes this kind of quiet, plodding steward of the government and does really well with it, people say, yeah, but come on, man, you know, but what has he done? Why is this boring? Joe Biden is boring. And that's one of the things I really think is speaks well of him. But that doesn't cut it in the 21st century. Tom Nichols, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. A new edition of Tom's book, The Death of Expertise, will be available in 2024. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady with editing assistance by Steph Chungu. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.